0: The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. If you are using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage beginning on page 983. 983. I wonder if another Christian has ever shared with you that the testimony of a, a believer uh, that they are, are so proud of. Uh, they have known this believer to be faithful in the midst of a difficult context, imagine writing a letter to that believer that you've just heard their testimony from a friend and are so encouraged by. You've never had the opportunity to meet them, but you wanted to encourage them to persevere, to keep going in the faith, keep trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. What what would you focus your letter on? What would you want to say to them, especially emphasize and impress upon them? What if you knew in particular that believer, it it lived in a place that was kind of had a whole lot of things bound up in it, a a difficult place to live. They lived in a place that was steeped in the wickedness of the occult like New Orleans, uh, that embraced the sins of Las Vegas, that loved the empty philosophy of the most liberal university and was drunk on the power of a government in a city like ours. What would you want to say to them? To help them remain faithful in a context like that. Now imagine that you yourself had been arrested and imprisoned for proclaiming Jesus. How might that inform the letter that you were writing to this believer and friend? That's something of the situation that Paul was in as he wrote this letter to the Colossians. In this letter, Paul, he exhorts the Christians in Colossae to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's going to be his focus for them. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, if you wanted to, I know I asked you to turn to Colossians 1, but if you wanted to turn over to chapter 2 and look at verses 6 and 7, this might be kind of the theme verse for the whole letter of Paul to the Colossians. He writes, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Throughout this letter, Paul, he urges the Colossian Christians to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And one of my hopes for this new study that we're embarking on in this letter is that we would do the same. Uh, Generally speaking, really in the first two chapters, Paul, he establishes Christ's lordship. What does it mean for Christ to be lord? He focuses in on that in these first two chapters, what it means for Christ to be the supreme ruler overall. And then in the remaining two chapters, Paul explains what Christ's lordship means for the Colossians in some of the details of their lives. Paul, he begins this letter by emphasizing how he and the Colossian believers have come to live under Jesus' loving lordship, and it was all by the grace of God. Follow along now as I read, so flip back to chapter 1 if you were in chapter 2. Go back to chapter 1. Follow along as I read our text this morning, Colossians 1, verses 1 to 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Well, in verses 1 and 2, Paul, he expresses his greetings to the Colossians. And in verses, followed in verses 3 to 8, by his gratitude to God for the Colossians and their growing faith and hope and love. From the opening of this letter, you should learn, Christian, you should learn to give thanks to God for His grace, and to you and to others. And that's the sermon in a sentence, give thanks to God for His grace to you and to others. We're going to unpack this passage under three headings. There should be a full outline provided there for you in your bulletin that may help you to follow along. Let's begin with our first point where we are, see, we should greet others with grace, Read verses 1 and 2 again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Paul, he stuffs a whole lot about himself and about the Colossians in these first two verses, and it's all related to God's grace. Grace is God's unmerited, his unearned favor towards sinners like us. And God shows his grace to sinners like us through salvation in his Son, Jesus, through sanctification, making us more and more like his Son, Jesus, and through sustaining our lives in his common grace, The very fact that Paul is writing this letter of love to a group of Christians shows us how profoundly God's saving grace has been at work in his own life. I mean, the first time we meet Paul in the New Testament, he is going by the Jewish name, Saul, and he is standing over a body. He's been approving of Stephen's execution, this new Christian. Acts chapter 8 verse 3 says this about Paul, also known as Saul, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. How could a man who was so dedicated to the destruction of the church become a man who calls Christians brothers, saints, and faithful? How could he pray that they would know God's grace and peace as he does there in verse 2? It was because in his grace God saved Paul and made him a servant of Christ. You can read about the background of Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. It's one of the most remarkable transformations. Paul's conversion, Paul's gracious call to salvation in Jesus Christ should encourage you. God transformed Paul, a murderer, and he can transform you. Now, I'm sure many of you are aware of this. This past week, there was a a terrible series of Super Bowl ads, uh, commercials called He Gets Us. Uh, They came from a left-leaning, biblically unsound organization that affirms sexual depravity rather than repentance and salvation in Jesus Christ. Well, a a pastor in Northern Ireland went ahead and made the advertisement that should have been made about Jesus. Instead of calling it, He Gets Us, it was called, He Saves Us. Uh, This pastor's commercial announced that Jesus saved a former witch, a former atheist, a former jihadist, a former member of the KKK a former drug, act, drug addict, a, a former gang leader, a former drag queen and prostitute, a former abortion doctor, a former transgendered woman, a former porn star, a former New Age guru, and a former lesbian activist. And the commercial concluded by saying that Jesus doesn't just get us. He saves us, transforms us, cleanses us, restores us, forgives us, heals us, delivers us, redeems us, and loves us. Friends, that is the power of God's saving grace. God transformed Paul. God has transformed millions, and God can transform you. The Lord Jesus, he didn't just save Paul. He called Paul to serve as one of his apostles we see there. The the word apostle means sent one. But Paul is a special kind of apostle. He's a a capital A apostle. Uh, In Matthew 28, Jesus calls all of his disciples disciples to go and make the gospel known. They're they're sent all in that sense, in the Great Commission. But there are also those in the New Testament who are especially sent by the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Some people in Christendom today take on the title of apostle, but they're they're not really apostles, at least not in the biblical capital A apostle kind of sense like Paul is. Uh, Jesus has not appeared to them physically, face to face, visibly. Uh, he's not commissioned them to be one who gives divinely authorized instructions to the church. But Paul, he's a legit capital A apostle. Uh, Jesus converted him, he commissioned him on the road to Damascus. And the words you see there of Christ Jesus tells us that Paul has been commissioned by the Christ to proclaim the Christ. That is to say, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior, King, promised in the Old Testament. He can't just go around proclaiming anything he wants. He has to proclaim Jesus. He's compelled to proclaim Jesus because he was commissioned to proclaim Jesus because Jesus had done such a work in his life. And here's the thing, this wasn't Paul's decision. You see there, this happened by the will of God in verse 1. This was God's will in the sense that it was God's plan for Paul. No one makes themselves an apostle. No one makes themselves a Christian. God saves and God sends if it had been up to Paul, he would have continued persecuting the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But God in Christ saved Paul. He selected Paul and he sent Paul to be his apostle. And Paul's mention of Timothy, you see there, it shows that grace has actually brought humility into Paul's life too. Pride really pushes your personality and your interests right to the front. But humility is happy to welcome others into the light, as Paul does with Timothy here. Timothy, he had been a companion of Paul during some of his missionary journeys. 2 Timothy 1, verse 5, it reveals that Timothy, he came to know God's grace through the faithful witness of his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice. So sisters in Christ, caring for children, know that the Lord can raise up a faithful man of God through your work in sharing the gospel with your sons and daughters. Share the good news of Jesus with your children. For this letter, uh, Timothy is probably Paul's amanuensis, his, uh, his secretary. He's probably writing the letter physically out for Paul. And if you look over to the last verse of the letter, so flip over just a couple of pages in your Bible, the last verse of the letter, uh, you see Colossians 4.18. You'll see that Paul, he's in prison, perhaps in Rome. And um, in Colossians 4.18, it says this, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So given his imprisonment, Timothy is probably physically writing the majority of the letter, while Paul is kind of signing the end of the letter. And notice the words back in chapter 1, verse 1, that Timothy is our brother. You See those at the very end of verse 1? Here Paul shows us how grace makes a spiritual family. Grace unites us to Jesus and to one another. Paul was a thoroughgoing Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he calls himself in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5. But Timothy's different. Timothy was a half Jew, half from his mother, and half Gentile or Greek from his father. And yet Paul calls Timothy our brother. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ unites us in the family of God. That Paul calls Timothy our brother reveals that he already views the Colossians as his family in Christ, too. They too are recipients of God's grace. And he says as much there in verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is Paul's gracious greeting. Uh, Maybe you stumbled over that word saints there. Uh, Some translations might put it like this, the the holy ones. This word saint is um, not a super spiritual designation as is so often used by the Roman Catholic Church. The uh, the Roman Catholic Church has, frankly, made up a different category from saint that we find in the Bible. When Paul writes to the saints at Colossae, he is simply writing to believers. The two phrases, to the saints and faithful brothers, are meant to explain one another, explain each other. So if you're a Christian, then you are a saint. Saints have gathered here this morning. Like God saved Paul and Timothy... And these people in Colossae, so God has saved you. Can you believe that you're a saint? We, we know that you're a sinner. But yes, you've also been set apart for salvation by God through Jesus Christ. Now, one interesting feature of verse 2 is that Paul, he's writing to these brothers. And by that, he meant brothers and sisters who are in Christ at Colossae. You see that phrase, in Christ at Colossae. Now, you would expect Paul to write to the saints in Colossae. But with this phrase, in Christ, Paul is already touching upon a dominant theme in his letter. Your spiritual location in Christ is more fundamental than your physical location at Colossae. Your spiritual location in Christ is more important than you being in Arlington or being from Texas. I mean, it's hard for Texans to get this. I just want to help you all out this morning. Um, Your spiritual location... Being found in Christ is the grace that helps you to live in your physical location. Faith is an embrace of Christ Jesus. It brings us out of Adam and into Jesus Christ, the second Adam. In Christ, we now receive all of the blessings and benefits that stem from him. Justification, adoption, sanctification, assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace and perseverance unto the end. This is what we receive in Christ. In Christ, his life, death, and resurrection become our life, death, and resurrection. The saints at Colossae needed to remember that they were in Christ because Colossae was a difficult place to live. Colossae was in the southwest region of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. It was in the Roman province of Phrygia. And in Colossae, Christians had to face the regular claims that Caesar was Lord, and was due absolute and unquestioned obedience. I mean, have you ever lived in a place where a government tried to throw its weight around and demand absolute and unquestioned obedience? In Colossae, there were those who insisted upon keeping regulations, asceticism, the worship of angels, visions, and other false teachings. You can read about that in chapter 2 verses 16 to 22, the Colossians, they were facing a whole host of difficulties in remaining faithful to Christ. And I wonder if you ever feel that way. Do you as a saint in Christ here at Arlington ever feel overloaded by different temptations, teachings, and forms of worship proffered by the world? You need the teaching that Paul gives to these saints in this letter. You need the grace and peace that Paul prays for these saints as we see here. Paul's greeting of grace and peace to the Colossians is a statement of fact and a prayer all rolled into one. So God's grace and peace have come to them in a saving sense. Uh, it, God's grace is sustaining them and sanctifying them as well. And God's grace and peace will continue to sustain them until they reach glory. God's grace, as I said, is his unmerited, his unearned favor towards sinners. It begins in your reception of salvation with Jesus Christ. And God's grace continues throughout the whole course of your life in making you more like Jesus. Peace is the cessation of war and conflict with God. You come to peace with God when you end your rebellion against God and submit to Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. The reality is that grace and peace can only come from, as you see there in verse 2, God our Father. This isn't just some general connection between God and men. This is a special connection. Not everyone is a child of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 reveals that by nature, all mankind are children of wrath, Paul says there. Jesus, in John chapter 8, verse 44, points out that the devil is the father of the Jewish religious leaders who want to kill him. Apart from union with Jesus Christ, Adam is our father. So we need to come out of Adam and become in Christ by faith. Naturally, we are not children of God, but supernaturally and spiritually, we are made children, God's children, through salvation, through the salvation of God's Son. We become God's sons and daughters, adopted into God's heavenly family. So in John chapter 1, verse 12, says that all who did receive Jesus, that is, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. When Paul tells the Colossians here that God is our Father, He's speaking about how God the Father has moved toward them and us in love. God is not just a father to us. He is the best father that we could ever have, hope for, or want. Our heavenly Father is full of boundless love to us. We know this, for as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord Yahweh shows compassion to those who fear him. Psalm 103, verse 13. Generous, gentle, and gracious. That is who God is as our Father. And this is Paul's gracious greeting. It's how we should actually greet fellow Christians in in your text messages, in your emails, in your conversations. Make gracious connections. Remind one another of the Lord's gracious work in Christ. Remind one another that you're brothers and sisters in Christ. Use that language. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that, sister. Siblings can be frustrating uh, and annoying. And sinful and so remembering that you are a sinner that Jesus is your Savior and that this brother or sister you are talking to is also a recipient of grace and loved by God the Father perhaps loved more than you love them at that moment certainly more all of that will help you to calibrate your speech in a gracious way greet others with grace and Give thanks for grace. That's our second point. Give thanks for grace. Read Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 to the first part of 5. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul, he he thanks God for the grace he has worked in the Colossian believers. Uh, Paul particularly uses his favorite triad of faith, hope, and love. He writes this in a number of his letters. Though here, Paul's reorganized. He's put it in a different order. I wonder if you noticed it. He's organized into faith, love, and hope. He has a reason for that. But first, look at that remarkable expression there in verse 3. We always... Thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that Paul is doing nothing else but spending all of his day thanking God. Paul's point is that whenever Paul and Timothy pray for the Colossians, they give thanks to God for the work of grace that God has done in the Colossians. Why? Because God's the ultimate source of this faith and love that's coming out of their lives. Christian, you can and should do this. If you're a member here at Arlington Baptist Church, you should do this as you pray for your fellow believers, your church members. Uh, our brother Dennis encouraged you to, to pick up a directory. So you, you pick up a directory and you, you pray this. You turn to a page and pray for one another. So when you pray for one another, give thanks to God for the work of grace that you see in each other's lives. So for example, if you were praying through page 13, you could pray something like this. Father, I give you thanks for the grace of perseverance you've given to Court and Esther over this last year. Father, I give you thanks for the grace of kindness and hospitality that you have uh, given to my sister Gabby. Father, I give you thanks for the grace of a gentle and quiet spirit that you have given to my sister Sushma. Father, I give you thanks for the grace of joy that you have given to my brother Joab and my sister Emily. Like Paul, whenever you pray for a fellow believer, try to find a way to thank God for the work that he has done in their lives. And if you don't know how to pray for your fellow church members, what work of grace is going on in their lives, that just tells you a couple of things. Number one, you need to get to know them, right? And number two, you you can reach out to them and ask them how you can pray for them and what they feel like the Lord is teaching them about his grace in their lives. Do you see the middle of verse three as Paul gives thanks? He mentions that God is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, Paul is introducing this main theme that he's going to have in his letter this lordship of Jesus. Paul, he's in a Roman prison, fearlessly proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. The Roman authorities would have despised this line in Paul's letter. They would have despised that line because they believed that Caesar was Lord. But here is Paul announcing Jesus' lordship, his sovereign rule over all. And Paul, he's going to do this again and again in his letter. So in Colossians chapter 1 verse 10, Paul will write, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Colossians 2.6 Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Colossians 3.13 Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Colossians 3.17 Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And we can keep going on. The point is, is that Christians recognize Jesus as the sovereign ruler, regardless of of circumstances, or what others claim. This is connected to our faith and love. We trust our Lord and we love like our Lord. And that's what Paul is thanking God for in verse 4, as he prays for these Colossians. But why is Paul telling them what he's praying for them for, praying about, that he's thanking God for? Why would you want to share that with someone else? To encourage them and to instruct them. Sometimes uh, you feel stuck in the mud, that there's no spiritual growth in your life, and you begin to grow discouraged. But when another believer comes along and says, I am thankful to God for how he gave you the grace to persevere through that trial, your heart lifts. It puts wind in your sails to hear another brother or sister in the Lord point out a work of God's grace in you. And it honors God. So Christian, give yourself to encouraging other believers in this way. And this is also instructive. Paul is pointing out the most important marks of grace that he's heard about the lives of the Colossians. It's a way of saying, keep your focus actually on these things. Keep dedicating yourselves to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep showing the love of the Lord Jesus to his people. And notice in verse 4 that Paul says that we heard of your faith in Christ you realize Paul, he'd never met these Colossians. He says as much there in chapter two, verse one. What Paul knows about the Colossians is what he's heard from co-laborers and acquaintances like Epaphras that he mentions there in verse seven. We should pray that we as a church have such a good testimony like the Colossians that, that others, as they come through here, they would see our faith and love and they would go back and they would share about how the Lord has worked in us, in our hearts and lives, and as a church family. Paul, he gives thanks to God for the Colossians' faith in Christ Jesus. If you you read through the rest of the letter, you'll see that the Colossians have a remarkable faith. In chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says that he wants the Colossians to continue in the faith. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 5, he says that he's rejoicing in the firmness of their faith. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul declares that he wants them to be established in the faith. He, he doesn't want them to be moved from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder, do you have faith? Faith means knowing who Jesus is. Knowing what Jesus has done. And being convinced that he's able to save you. And that you trust in him alone for salvation. Paul, he had heard about their faith in Christ Jesus. What about you? Do you have faith in Christ Jesus? You realize faith is not kind of abstract. I just just don't believe. It's faith in Jesus. Friend, do you realize that God made you in his image? He made you to love him and to serve him and to follow him, to submit to his loving rule and command. But like Adam and like the rest of mankind, we have all sinned against God. We've rebelled against God. We've decided to live our own way going to order our lives how we want. We're going to disregard God's law and make up our own. The Bible describes sin as rebellion against God, transgressing his commands, breaking his laws, and we've all done that. The book of Romans tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but the good news of the Bible is that God sent his son in love to live for us the life that we've not lived, to die the death that our sins deserve. So Jesus was paid our wages for working in sin. He took the eternal wrath of God upon himself as he died on the cross, bearing the punishment that was due to our sins. And he died. He was buried. And three days later, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, showing Jesus victory over sin and death and that he was a savior that we could trust, that Jesus overcame sin and death for us. And so if we unite ourselves to him in faith, believing in him, trusting in him, turning from our sins and holding on to him, we will be saved, welcomed with him in glory friend, know what Jesus has done. He's lived and died and been raised for sinners. Trust that he can save you. Turn from your sin and hold on to him today. Place your faith in Christ Jesus. Paul, he's heard about this faith in Christ Jesus, but he's also heard about their love. You see that in verse 4? These believers, they were embodying the teaching of Jesus in John chapter 13, verse 35, where our Savior said, by this all people will know, that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. J.C. Ryle rightly said, Let us take heed that this well-known Christian grace, love, is not merely a notion in our heads, but a practice in our lives. Of all the commands of our Master, there is none which is so much talked about and so little obeyed as this. Note carefully that the Colossians did not love some saints, but all the saints. They didn't love those who were just easy to love. They loved those who were difficult to love as well. They were attentive and affectionate toward those who might be overlooked. They did not let their differences in ethnic origins or economic opportunities put a distance between them. They personally and proactively loved one another. May we do the same. It is good and right for you to form strong friendships in our church family It is good and right for you to have a best friend in the church. It's God-honoring. And be sure to keep widening your circle of friendship more and more so that you're loving all of the saints. Verse 5, it announces something startling. This faith and love that Paul has heard about, it flows from the Colossians' hope stored up in heaven. They believe and trust. They love and serve because of what they know they have in heaven. What might that be? Better yet, who might that be? They have Christ. We see in the Bible that hope is not a fleeting feeling. It is not a certain kind of wishful thinking. It is a confidence in God and in his power to keep his promises. And hope trusts in God's power and is itself powerful. Listen to what Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter one verses nine and ten. Paul writes, Indeed, we have felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will again deliver us. Do you have that courage and confidence from Paul? He's trusting in God to deliver him. A few chapters later, in second Corinthians chapter three. Verse 12, Paul says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. You see, hope, it actually spurs a boldness and hope shapes our behavior. If we really believe we're headed to heaven, we're going to live like we're destined for heaven. And so in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 13, we read this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. What is that? Paul goes on and says, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, these Colossians, they believe that Jesus is coming back. Their Lord is reigning in heaven. He's ruling now, and he's watching over their lives. And they can live in hope. They can trust him, faith in him today, and love like him. This hope that's stored up for them. Is contagious. It spreads among their whole congregation. The Christians in Colossae they have the hope of glory. They're certain that they're receiving a kingdom, just as Jesus promised them. Beloved Paul, he gives thanks for for this this hope that's at work in them. Their hope is powerful. It's in a place that cannot be captured or corroded. Christian, you realize that if your hope is in heaven, nobody can take it from Christ. Nobody can take Christ from there. They live, these Colossians, they live in the present world with all of its difficulties, with faith and love, because they hope, because they're confident that one day God will keep all of his promises. It's evidenced by their faith and love flowing from this heavenly hope. If you want to see your faith grow and your love for others expand, remember your hope in heaven. Remember the author of your faith. Remember how he loved you. Remember his promise to come again and take you to himself. John 14. See, if you are heavenly minded, if you're thinking about Christ reigning in glory, then you will be of earthly good. You can spend yourself now. You can pour yourself out now because you know that you have a reward and a rest that is coming from your Redeemer in glory. Like Paul, greet others in grace, Give thanks to God for the grace you see in the lives of others and grow in grace. This is our third and final point. Grow in grace. Read Colossians, really picking up kind of there in the middle of verse 5 to verse 8. Of this you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it, and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras our beloved fellow servant he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit in these verses paul he revels in the growth of grace the gospel that has seen been seen in the world and in the colossians verses 5 and 6 they kind of bounce back and forth between the colossians and the world and back to the colossians again Having spoken about how the Colossians' faith and love flows from their hope in heaven, Paul reminds them where they've heard of this hope before. They've heard of this hope, Do you see there, in the word of the truth. That is to say, the gospel. The word gospel simply means good news. It's the good news that Jesus came to save sinners by his life, death, and resurrection. And Paul has used this expression that we're seeing here. He's used it before. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, he wrote, "...in him you also..." when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So as he did in Ephesians, here Paul reminds us that the word of the gospel is a true word. Christian, did you realize that when you're sharing Jesus with somebody else, you are telling them the truth about who God is, about who they are, and who Jesus is? False and deceitful words were flying all around Colossae. Throughout This letter, Paul warns against people who would try to delude the Colossians with plausible arguments. Chapter 2, verse 4. The Colossians, Paul said, were not to be taken captive by those who put forth worldly philosophy, empty deceit, and human tradition. Chapter 2, verse 8. Truth is under attack in our world. We are told that each individual can live their own truth as though that were true. It's not. It's false. It's a deceitful lie. Truth is objective and real. It's not subjective and transitory. Truth, as R.C. Sproul once said, is reality as God sees it. God's word is the truth by which you may measure the words of men. As Matthew Henry said, the gospel is the word of truth and what we may safely venture our immortal souls upon. It proceeds from the God of truth and the spirit of truth and is a faithful saying. You can venture your soul, your immortal soul, upon the word of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You realize that deceit destabilizes. That's part of its goal. Lies, they corrupt, corrode, confuse, they create conflict. You know this. You've experienced it in your own life and in your relationships with others. Maybe at work or in your family. The truth of Jesus is an anchor in the storm. It tells you who God is, who you are how you may be saved, and how you ought to live for his glory. Christian, you need to know the gospel backward and forward. It's one of the reasons why we ask every member joining Arlington Baptist Church to share the gospel with us in their membership interview. It's one of the reasons why I tell you the gospel over and over and over again every Lord's Day. You live in a world of lies. The world and the devil will lie to you. Your own sinful flesh will lie to you. And you need to remember the truth of Jesus. This is a way to grow in grace, to so take in the word of God, putting on the belt of truth, as Paul will call it in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. The gospel, the word of truth, is a word by which you can rely upon to reveal not only your need, but also how the grace of God in Jesus Christ meets your deepest need. It was this word of truth that was growing in the whole world, Paul says, Paul's here delighting in the fact that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is bearing fruit and increasing. That language, it should remind us of Genesis chapter one, verses 22 and 28, where there was that be fruitful and multiply language in the account of creation. There is a new creation principle at work in our world. God's word of truth is bringing life and fruitfulness to a dark and dead world. This should encourage us to share it boldly. And by God's grace, the book of acts it tells us of the rapid expansion of the gospel of jesus and his church the book began with jesus telling his disciples in acts chapter 1 verse 8 but you will receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in jerusalem and all judea and samaria and to the ends of the earth that was a prophetic and programmatic statement by jesus if you read through the book of acts that's exactly the trajectory that the good news of Jesus went. It expanded outward from Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria. And then by the time you get to the end of the book, Paul is proclaiming the gospel in Rome. That was the end of the known world at that time. We too should rejoice when the gospel grows in the world. It's one of the reasons that in nearly every pastoral prayer, I lead us in praying for gospel growth in some nation of the world. So we prayed for Georgia this morning, a population, an evangelical population, of 1.5% of more than 3 million people, I think almost 4 million people in that country. We want to pray for the gospel to grow there. Now, halfway through verse 6, you see there, Paul, he comes back to the Colossians to declare that just as the gospel is bearing fruit and growing in the world, so is bearing fruit and growing among them. How? Well, it started first with their hearing. In verse 5, Paul said that they heard the word of truth. In verse 6, Paul says that they heard it, and understood the grace of God in truth. There's that phrase, in truth, again. And then Paul also says that they learned it from Epaphras, there in verse 7. Do you see that the gospel is a truth to be heard? It's a truth to be learned and shared. And that that is how it grows. It doesn't grow through magic. It doesn't grow through bright lights and big shows. It doesn't grow through gimmicks and glamour. The gospel grows in the world and in you by the plain, ordinary process of preaching and teaching, of reading, hearing, and understanding. Do you want to grow? Gather with us on Sunday mornings for worship. Attend Sunday school. Come to Wednesday night Bible study. Join the church and dive into a small group. Read the Bible with another church member. Attend the women's conference in March. You're a sister in the Lord. In all of those spaces and places, you will hear the word. That's what the ministry of this church is founded upon. And if you support ministries outside of this church, I encourage you to make sure that is the foundation of their mission and ministry as well. The teaching and preaching of God's word. In Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 17, we read, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they have not never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You see, the gospel, it grows. It advances through its preaching and teaching. If you possess the truth, you should proclaim the truth. That's precisely what Epaphras did. And it's why the gospel grew in Colossae. It's why the gospel is growing in the world. Because faithful men like him, like Epaphras and like Paul, were proclaiming the truth in the world. According to Paul, Epaphras here is a beloved fellow servant, literally a slave. Paul showing us that Jesus is Epaphras' master and Lord. According to Paul, Epaphras is a faithful minister of Christ. Notice that. I think this is really instructive to pastors. Pastors are first and foremost servants and ministers of Christ. To serve Jesus' people best, we must serve Jesus first. A pastor's loyalty must first lie with the Lord Jesus. Epaphras, he he seems to have been an amazing man. Not only was he diligently carrying out faithful work among the Colossians, but flip over to chapter four. Look at chapter four, verse 13. Paul says that he also worked hard for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. That's Colossians 4.13. Pastors should work hard. They should be busy men, busy among their people, And from time to time, where God enables, and their congregations allow, lending a helping hand to support other gospel work as well. But there's more. According to uh, Philemon 23, at some point, Epaphras' faithfulness landed him in prison with Paul. Pastors know that suffering imprisonment for the sake of Christ is an honor for the Lord. That he's worthy of it and worth it. There's something else that pastors should do too. It's make known the love of their people. Do you see that in verse 8? Epaphras made known to Paul and to Timothy the Colossians' love in the Spirit. See, it's the Holy Spirit who gives us love for one another. And this is personally such a privilege for me. I meet and talk with a lot of pastors. I'm part of a, a monthly pastor's phone call. I'm a part of a monthly pastor's lunch. I'm part of an annual meeting of almost 300 pastors who get together once a year. And in each of those contexts, we share what's going on in our congregations. And it is constantly my privilege to tell them of your love in the spirit. I can tell them about faithful brothers and sisters who joyfully teach children in Sunday school week in and week out. I can tell them about how you care for one another when a member is discouraged, lifting them up, bearing their burdens and sorrows. I can tell them about how one couple comes alongside another and helps them in their marriage. I can tell them about how you make meals for one another when a new baby is born or a member is sick. I can tell them about your hospitality and fellowship, how you welcome each other into your homes. I can tell them about how you diligently pray for one another when there is a serious medical concern in our body. I can tell them about how you are generous with one another. You meet each other's needs, even financially sometimes. And I I could keep going. Maybe you as an individual member don't see all of those things taking place in our church family, but as one of your pastors, it is, it's my great joy to tell of your love in the spirit to others. And for all of that gospel growth among us, God alone deserves all glory and honor and praise. And we should give ourselves to that continued growth in grace. Beloved, do you want to see the gospel grow in your life? Then do what the Colossians did. Seek to listen, to hear, to learn, to understand the grace of God in truth. It will take work, but place yourself regularly and continually in the way of faithful preaching and teaching. And give yourself not only to hearing, but to sharing the grace of God in truth. Share it with your neighbors, your friends, and your coworkers. Invite them to come and hear the grace of God in truth. Bring them here on a Sunday or to the Bible study on Wednesday night. This is how the grace of God will grow in us and in our world. Do you want to change the world? Well, then cultivate the grace of God in your heart and commend God's grace to others. We should conclude. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, we've seen that Paul, he reveals his gratefulness to God for all the saints, uh, for what God is doing in them, in Colossae. Paul, he teaches us to remember the grace that we've been shown in Jesus Christ. He teaches us to give thanks to God for the grace of faith, hope, and love, growing in others. And he teaches us to delight in God's power to make grace grow in our congregation and in the world. Beloved, this week, give thanks to God for His grace to you and to others. And perhaps like Paul, consider writing a letter or a short note to another believer in Christ. You can know them. Write to them. Maybe encourage them by the grace that you see at work in their lives and give thanks and praise to God for that. Pray for God's grace to grow in you to grow in them, to grow in our congregation, and grow in the world. Let's pray for that now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are a powerful and mighty God. Powerful enough to save a murderer like Paul and transform him into a trophy of your grace. Father, you can work in us like that. We ask for you to work in us like that. And Father, we pray and ask that you would unite our hearts to Christ and to one another. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.